everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm here after a long, long COVID-induced layoff with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. Andrew, before we begin, do you want to say a bit about your podcast? Yeah, for sure. Choose the Hard Way is a show about how hard things build stronger people. If you're listening to this show and you love professional cycling, I think you'll love Choose the Hard Way. Some of my recent guests I think you might dig. I've had Dr. Kevin Sprouse, team doctor for EF Education First Easy Post. I've got Dr. Scott Fry coming up. He is a neuroscientist and high performance expert and lots more. So come check us out. Just search for Choose the Hard Way on Google. And we are on listening platforms everywhere. And you can also find us on social at Hardway Pod. It's a great podcast. Highly recommend it. And I am, I, I'm from Choose the, or not Choose the Hard Way, Beyond the Peloton newsletter. It's a paid newsletter where I break down pro cycling races um, detail by detail. So if you're wondering who the heck we are, now you have your answer. Um, we were both laid up with COVID. We recorded like right as I was leaving for the airport to go to the UK. I promptly went to the UK, had a lot of fun, definitely got COVID there. Um, Andrew went to Kansas City, did the same thing, got COVID. Um, let's talk about that at the end. I think we both have some interesting cycling related insights from our battles with COVID after only knowing about it theoretically for years. I found it kind of interesting to actually have it and try to get some fitness back. But first, Andrew's first and really only love in cycling. Cyclocross, the season is uh, is just kicking off. I mean, not just kicking off. It's It's been going on for a while, but it's just getting interesting uh, because the big boys, Matthew Vanderpool, Walt Benart, Tom Pickcock have come out of hibernation and are now racing. Andrew, do you just want to give us like a little bit of a like background primer on what exactly has been going on in cross for the last few weeks? Well, as we were discussing before we started recording, I have my Valmont stinger grown out today. If you don't know what a stinger is, it's a V-shaped patch of hair that goes below the lip. Very popular in cyclocross <laughs> and in mountain biking in the early to mid 90s on par with the the like mutton chop style sideburn closely shorn in the style of Travis Brown still popular today with master cyclocross racers shout out Valmont. So what's been going on with cyclocross so far this season? Well, what's been going on in cyclocross for quite a while now is that the cyclocross season happens and then Wout Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool show up and they absolutely destroy everyone. They come in, they're at, they're like plus 10% relative to everyone else. The other big plot twist here is Tom Pidcock moved up to the elite ranks and 2022 immediately won, or sorry, 2021 immediately won the world championships. And we now have this three-way battle for cyclocross supremacy, pretty similar to some things we saw go down in major road races and at the tour this year, where we have a face-off between Pidcock, Matthew Vanderpool, and Wout Van Aert. And if you're someone else in the pro cycling, uh, cyclocross universe, say Ellie Isabrid, Lars Vanderhaar, Michael Van Turnout, these are amazing talents and they just get destroyed when these guys show up to race. It's almost like they're extras and space balls running around in the background, just competing for scraps. But this introduces so many interesting aspects of what's going to happen within the cyclocross season. Then of course, what are we going to see happen as we go into the road season in 2023? And what are the second and third order consequences for any Ray Dalio fans out there going to be of the participation of these athletes in the pro cyclocross season? So Spencer, what's on your mind right now? Well, here, you, you touched on it at the end of there. Ellie Iserbit. I mean, this guy was like dominating, winning World Cups back in October. 
And then, you know, I get COVID. I'm kind of out of it. I'm not really paying attention to anything. In November, I'm watching a lot of soccer, but not really absorbing it because I was out of my mind <laughs> with a fever. And I, I like tune back in this weekend. I'm catching up on all the cross races while I'm on the trainer. Ellie Iserbit looks like he's in slow motion compared to Vanderpool, Pitcock, and Van Art. And Van Art doesn't, he was saying he's not even in shape. And he got second yesterday in his first race of the season at the World Cup in Antwerp. Antwerp? I assume it's just a World Cup in Antwerp. But he was really, like, he, he didn't look his best, and he just destroyed the field. Got beat by Matthew Vanderpool, but beat these, like, full-time cross racers. And Vanderpool, Van Aert, and Pickock are really just part-time racers. Like, they're just doing this in their spare time as fun. And Pickock is the world champion, and I think... Vanderpool's the world champion the three years before that. And then Van, Van so yeah, Vanderpool's the world champion the three years before that. Van Art's the world champions the three years before that. So what's that? A seven year run that no rider other than these three have been a world champion. It's really an astonishing dom- dominance. And I always think when cross season comes around, I'm like, God, I got better things to do. I have other sports to watch. I need a break from cycling. Tour, I can feel the Tour Down Under breathing down my neck. And it's, oh, man, we just finished Lombardia. Tour Down Under starting up in a few months. I need to take a break. I need to watch some soccer. I need to watch some F1. Let, let me center myself with some other sports. And I turned on uh, Vanderpool's first race of the year, the World Cup Hoost. Hoost. And it, these are amazing courses. I mean, these guys were like running up. It looked like a... 70 degree slope and then having to ride down stuff that there's no way I would ever be able to ride down and they have to do it like in the mud in a race and they're all falling over each other. So I'm, I'm officially back in on cross cross has, has my attention, but Andrew, like the big question, big picture question I have, and this is kind of a stupid question. Um, I, I kind of fundamentally disagree with it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is this bad for the sport? The fact that these three guys can parachute in that, you know, all these full-time professionals are working hard. They're winning World Cups at the beginning of the year, and they just get absolutely destroyed by part-timers who just parachute in whenever they feel like it. Like, is that healthy for cyclocross? Or will they just take what they can get because these guys are so good and it's fun to watch them race in a different arena than they normally do? I think it's bringing new fans into the sport and getting in aggregate far more people interested in watching pro cyclocross racing. Cyclocross... In the United States, unfortunately, is definitely on the decline, I would say. I still love watching domestic cyclocross racing, and the coverage is better than it's ever been with the advent of drones in particular. But if you watch domestic pro cyclocross races, or if you go out to your local race, and I'm sure there might be a handful of promoters and people who are on Twitter who are going to tell me I'm completely wrong, but I don't think the data supports that. There just aren't that many people going out and participating in cyclocross races at the amateur level anymore, except perhaps at Valmont, some pockets on the East Coast. So from a participation point of view, the sport's on the decline. From a viewership point of view, I don't think we've ever had more people interested in the action that's happening in the races. Now, if you were one of the, I'm going to call them minor characters, which sounds disparaging. It's it's not just... Writers like Lars Vanderhaar. Poor Lars. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, Always I mean, plays second fiddle to some great writer. Yeah. And Lars is he's a generational talent, just not a generational talent on par with Pitcock, Van Art, and uh, Matthew Vanderpool. But I think 
it's great. It brings more people into the sport. It gets them more interested. Now, whether it's actually beneficial for Pidcock, Van Aert, and Matthew Vanderpool to be participating in this these races, I think is a different question and one we should definitely take a look at. That's my yeah, that's my next question. But and you and you're totally right. Like I used to go to I, I was a cyclocross head. You know, I would go to all these races in the US. Um, I loved it. I, you know, I'd go out to Valmont. I remember when like Powers was Jeremy Powers. And it also, if you're listening to this and you're like, what the heck is cyclocross? Um, I thought we were talking about the Tour de France. Cyclocross is, they're kind of on road bikes or modified road bikes, but they're on short course, kind of mountain bikey routes. And you ride around in a park, basically. Um, in Europe, the courses tend to be a lot gnarlier, very difficult terrain, but you have to get off your bike and run through sand traps or over barriers. So it, it's kind of a more of a complete sport than road cycling i think the origins is the origin is like back in france you know 70 years ago when people were training in the off season their feet would get cold because it's hard to ride around on a road bike in the middle of winter so they would get off and run through fields every now and then to warm their feet up and then it kind of split off into its own niche sport that riders used to do in the off season for fitness and now has become so competitive that you it's very difficult to split time but vanderpool Van Art and Pickock do split time. It's kind of a throwback thing to do. My question is, so Vanderpool looked amazing. Um, I mean, he's looked amazing this whole cross season. He did not look amazing at the Tour de France last year. He kind of had a mental meltdown at the World Championships, which I think he could have won the Road Race World Championships. Like, how long can he get away with looking this good in cross and then kind of throwing up, for a lack of a better word, throwing up turds at massive races like the Tour de France in the road season. And I think he was struggling in the beef of the road season because he was so tired from probably a full season of cross, half season of mountain bike, and then jumping kind of straight into the spring classics in Giro d'Italia, which is a really tough load on your body. Um, like if he just keeps doing this for years, I guess, I guess he's so good that maybe we'd be fine with it. But... Like, do you think a difficult question ever gets asked where it's like, hey, man, what are you doing? Why, why are you spending your off seasons wearing down your body? I think it's hard to just race 12 months out of the year. Do, I mean, do you think this is sustainable or like what's the path here? I'm going to quote Zach De La Rocha from Rage Against the Machine, who is definitely quoting someone else. If the question is how long, the answer is not long because what you reap is what you sow. <laughs> In the short term, <laughs> In the short term. This strategy works. These riders are very young, relatively. So physiologically, their bodies can absorb a lot of stress, a very high TSS for any Training Peaks fan out, out there. Over time, it's not going to work. And I think what we're going to see is the same thing that happened last year, where later in the season, they're going to crash and burn. They're going to become mentally and physically fatigued. And there's just no way your central nervous system and your physiology and total can handle competing at this level of extreme intensity 10 out of 12 months, I think is probably what yeah. these guys do. 10 out of 12 months out of the year. Pidcock, for example, had, you know, he won uh, world championships, then Olympic gold medal in the world championships were in cyclocross, then the gold medal in mountain biking at the Olympics, then won the Alpe d'Huez stage at the tour. And then in the middle of the summer had a hit stop. And when he eventually came back for cyclocross season, he said, yeah, I was just destroyed primarily mentally 
I, it's just a very long time to be competing at the very highest level. Now, Spencer, you and I have talked a lot about cycling 2.0. There's a new style of cycling now for sure. Training, nutrition, the information is out there. People are better at a younger age than ever before. They don't necessarily, though, have the wisdom to know when to say when. And I think that's what we're seeing with these riders. And I doubt that they have people around them telling them to hit pause. And I have a few thoughts about that as well. But what are your thoughts on what we're seeing here and whether or not it's sustainable? Well, Pitcock is him. So just for reference, Van, Van Art's 28. Vanderpool's 27 going on 28 very soon. They're essentially the same age, approaching 30, which is a little freaky to think about because I remember when they were teenagers. Tom Pickock's 23, and he's handling this the, be the best of all of them. I don't think that's a coincidence. Van Art and Vanderpool seem to, like, if you remember 2019, Vanderpool was unbelievable on the road. I think he would have won multiple tour stages if he would have gone to the tour that year. Um, probably could have won a couple monuments. And he was amazing in, in cyclocross and mountain bike. I think you cannot keep that up as you get older. We're seeing Van Art. I mean, we're seeing Van Art's not the same cross rider he used to be. When he was a world champion, he was at a different level than he is now. He's kind of tamped down. It seems like he's doing this more for fun and just a little bit of, I guess, sharpening his fitness. I, I still think that's not a great idea in the winter. Uh, Vanderpool is amazing in cross, but I was looking it up. He's not. You know, he is not on the same level as Van Art on the road. If you look at their head-to-head -head numbers, he's getting kind of swept by, obviously, he's won two Tour of Flanders, so I don't want to, like, slam him too much. But after <laughs> post-Tour post Flanders this year, I, I, thought, I thought he could have gotten more out of that Giro. I was really disappointed in the Tour, really disappointed at Worlds. And then it just seems like the, he's getting fatigued because he's – on all the time pitcock is getting away with it the best i think it's because he's young i think as you age you have to stop racing 10 months out of the year it just seems crazy do you think <laughs> yeah a crazy idea do you think you gotta you have to stop racing 10 months out of the year when you get older is that and you so know who like the big beneficiary of this is like people like dylan van barl he wins Paris roubaix last year like if van art and vanderpool aren't racing cross and they're just focusing on those spring classics like they, it, we would probably see what we were seeing with Boonen and Cancellara, where you rarely saw an outsider win monuments in that era. It was like the big stars would win. Um, think of Casper Askren. Like that guy has a career because these guys, I mean, I'm being a little exaggerating there, but he's able to win major races because these guys can't focus just on the road. Like if Pitcock was just focusing on the road, he probably could be a tour contender. But the fact that he spread himself so thin, it does dilute their performances on the road. I think they're just so talented. It's not totally obvious to the naked eye. You really have to dig into their um, like hit rates and like, well, what could they be achieving if they just focused on one thing? But maybe that's not who they are. Maybe they wouldn't be, they wouldn't find that enjoyable or be able to focus on one thing. I, I mean, what do you think about that? I wonder about the financial upside for them racing year-round and disciplines that don't get a ton of media coverage. I'm also thinking about the fact that both Pidcock and Van Aert have Red Bull sponsorships. So perhaps there are actual financial incentives for them to participate in cyclocross for Pidcock and mountain biking for Pidcock and for Van Aert to participate in cyclocross. But really the big money is in world tour road racing and winning at the highest level, winning at the tour. 
So I have to imagine that's where the biggest financial upside is for them. I don't think that what they're doing is necessarily a rational decision. And while it is irrational, that's part of what I like about these writers, uh, even Matthew Vanderpool, and I, he's even gone on the record and said, I can't do any more stupid attacks. I think that's those may be the exact words he used to characterize some of his writing over the past few months of the road season in 2022. Maybe he called them silly attacks. Let's call them silly. <laughs> but he just he's wasting yeah. a ton of energy at the wrong times, writing non-strategically and just applying brute force because he wanted to bend the will of the Peloton to his personal strength. And what I will say about these three writers is in combat sports and if you're new to be on the Peloton or you don't know much about me in my past, I spent a decade as a freelance journalist. I was a communications executive at Strava. I've done a bunch of other things, but I used to write about the UFC quite a bit. And I wrote about a number of UFC champions, title holders. And I see the same qualities in Van Art, Pidcock, and Vanderpool that I saw in some of those UFC title holders. They have the quality that in combat sports is called gameness. They want to fight. Like they love the fight. They love being in the fight. And you can see that in the way they ride and just their eagerness to be out there competing and winning every time that they step into the arena. As a fan of sport, I love that. As a rational, most of the time, human being, it just seems like nonsense because I know that this is going to diminish the overall trajectory and length of their careers. And I think their ability to reach some of their higher level objectives. It also seems that these younger writers, and as you pointed out, Van Art and Vanderpool, they're kind of, they're in the middle of their careers more than at the beginnings. I don't think they want to have super long careers. I think this is, uh, you know, better to burn out than to fade away. And I think they're all in on now and not so much thinking about tomorrow. Yeah, I guess that's what makes them exciting. And all the, we should note, all these, these three guys are, underpaid because of this like they don't make as much on the road right. as they should because like vanderpool purposely puts himself on a smaller team that he can kind of control so he can just make his own schedule um pickcock could be super high like i'm talking pickcock if he wanted to devote himself to grand tours could probably demand five million pounds a year from ineos um van art's Probably the highest paid of the three. Still, I'd still think a little underpaid. I mean, you think of what you're getting from Van Art. He basically allows you to have a domestique and a stage winner, a mount, both a mountain and flat domestique at the tour, and a guy who can win stages, and a guy who can probably potentially compete in the GC. And you're getting that all wrapped in one rider. Like he should be maybe the highest paid rider on that team, and he's not. So they all basically are paying to race cyclocross. So they love, they clearly love it. And maybe they feel like they need it to, to stay competitive in the road and keep their minds occupied. But yes, as a rational human, I just think, God, these guys are not going to win. And no, no writer thinks this way. But I, as a dork, think this way. I'm like, oh, like they're, they're, they're legacies. They're not going to win as many monuments as Boonin and Cancellara. Like, what about the end of career numbers, boys? But they, they as you say, they, they're, they have the game. Like, they're gamers. They don't, they don't care about sitting at the end of their career as like a uh, Cervello brand ambassador and saying, I won eight monuments and I'm awesome. They just want to race, you know, today and tomorrow and the next day. So I guess that's, that's why they're them and I'm me and I'm a lot less cool than they are. I'll wildly speculate here. 
I believe this will be the last season that we see Pidcock all over the map with I mountain do, biking yeah, and cyclocross. I do about that. I, I think he's going to go for winning the yellow jersey. I think he wants to win the Tour de France, and I see him going for it. I actually think we're going to see him take a swing for it in 2023. And I think he has a chance of winning in 2024. And I, this, is all, this is like a Bill Simmons isms that you don't want to fall into where he, you know, Pickock sees Evan Apol and he thinks, I got to beat that guy. I don't think Pickock gives a crap. But Pickock got six at the World Rudd Race Championships in 2021. And I thought he was the strongest rider in that race. He couldn't go to the World Rudd Race Championships in 2022 because he was so fatigued from his long, multifaceted season. I do wonder if. He's like, well, maybe I screwed up a little bit there. When he sees Evanapol riding away and winning worlds, he must think I'm I'm as good as that guy. And now he's you know the top star in our sport, and I could have been world champion. Like that was a great course for Pickock, and he kind of let it slip through his fingers. So I I do wonder if that will maybe focus Pickock a little bit. And I am acknowledging that maybe Pickock doesn't care, and I care more about him winning world championships than he does. I want to shift gears slightly, Spencer. I was checking transfer news uh, over the past couple of weeks. I mean, number one, there's this big question mark of where goes Cav and who has the money or to whom will specialize, give several million euros to place Cav on a team. Options seem very limited there. Before we jump into that, I noticed that we had, um, this isn't shocking, but there are a number of legacies entering the world tour this season. Specifically, we have Thibaut Nice son of Sven Nice, one of the greatest cyclocross racers of all time. So there's the bridge. And then we have Matthew Riccatello. He is the son of a legendary pro triathlete. And uh, just from a talent development point of view, now that younger and younger riders are being scouted and brought into world tour systems at a younger age, what are your thoughts on targeting legacy riders such as, I mean, Matthew Vanderpool, right? It's like we have a, a number of examples now of legacy riders doing very well at the world tour level. It's not always the case that the uh, sons or daughters of the fathers and mothers who shone so brightly in yesteryear go on to win. Yet we do have uh, a number of these youngsters coming up who potentially could be going into the world tour. Do you think that that's a, an effective strategy to target these legacy you riders? You probably don't want to be targeting the legacy. In full disclosure, I had dinner with Matthew's family and they're lovely. So I guess I'm biased when I talk about them. I think Matthew's going to win the tour. Best writer, best American writer since Lamond. That's never cursed anybody. Um, but yeah, you probably don't want to target them just because they're a legacy. It is. Now that you mentioned it, we have seen a lot of legacy writers be incredible. Like, uh, if you remember, huh, how about that? Like Axel Merckx, I think, probably didn't achieve everything he should have as a writer. He's a great manager, but as a writer, because of the pressure um, on him, because of his dad was probably the best cyclist of all time. But it's funny, like Vanderpool, I almost forget that he's a legacy writer. I mean, he's much more talented than his father. His grandfather was probably, you know, was definitely a better GC writer, but not as good all around and you kind of think of Vanderpool as his own thing less of a legacy um also think of oh man I I, I'm, I just forgot them but my my memory is definitely not as good since COVID by the way that that's that's a uh that's definitely a real side effect but yeah a lot of these legacy writers are incredible like I'd say better than their parents or uh and maybe Taylor Finney wasn't more accomplished than his parents but probably more talented. 
I also think, God, I don't know. It's a good question. Like if, if your radio, wait, who did he sign for BMC? Do you sign Taylor Finney again? Or do you think they kind of regret that signing? Now, he had some success early, but then it seemed like he maybe lost interest in the sport because he found it boring and maybe something that he was pushed into by his parents. I don't want to you know, read into something that isn't there, but it, you did get that feeling a little bit. That would be my concern if I was a team manager, but I, I mean, I was looking at Sven Nice's son's results recently and I mean, that kid's really good. I, I would sign him in a heartbeat. I, don't, I just don't think you want to sign them with the expectation that they're bringing the same thing that their parents brought with them. In other sports, it tends not to work out. Um, like think of Bronny James, LeBron's son's, LeBron James's son. I just, I mean, he's not the same player. If you, if you evaluate him on who he is and you like it and you recruit him because of that, that's great. But if you sign him expecting them to be their parent, I think that's where that gets tricky. Yeah. And I might have some kind of familiarity bias because I'm going and looking for examples of where this has worked out. And you're right. There are a number of examples, counter examples. And the trick or the critical path here, I think, is like you have to have the combination of that substrate of talent that these writers tend to have coupled with the gameness that I was talking about a little while ago here in this podcast. And the gameness is not always there particularly for athletes who have an extremely high level of, of natural talent. So you have to have that specifically in professional cycling. You have to be willing to suffer and go super deep. And that's not something that everyone wants to do to go make a living. Some people want to go be, um, do other things. Then maybe they want to work in finance or they want to be an artist or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I guess and suffer in different ways. Mention it. I guess like Steph Curry is a legacy writer. Same thing with Clay Thompson. And they're both, uh, you know, I would say significantly better than their fathers. It's kind of a funny, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, but like, who was, who was LeBron James's parents? Were they amazing athletes? That's what I don't totally, I guess, inherited athleticism fascinates me. You don't, it's not often like a one for one inheritance that you would imagine where, you know, LeBron James is maybe the most athletically impressive person I've ever seen play a sport. And like, where did he come from? I need to know more about his parents. Was his dad just like the best rec league player anyone had ever seen? Or was he just like a normal guy who happened to be passing along amazing genes and you just have the right things aligning when he's, you know, in the womb forming as a child? I I don't understand it at all. And I've never quite heard a fantastic explanation for how that happens. Yeah, I have no idea either. And I realized that there are a couple aspects of that cyclocross conversation that I forgot to discuss because I also am having that that COVID. I don't quite remember everything. Before, same same as I used to. I'll, I'll bail you out here. So I I, yeah. I haven't not looked into this because I'm lazy. But our and this is where the Vanderpool Van Art Pitcock thing gets a little tricky. That they'll come in and they'll dominate cyclocross and then they'll leave. I think Pitcock was the only one of the three at the World Championships last year. Do you know if who which of them are planning to see the season out and race through worlds? I'd assume Van Art is not because it kind of conflicts with the Yumba Visma training camp. Do you know if Van Vanderpool is planning to go to worlds or if Pitcock's going to defend his title there? This is a world of a dangerous world of yeah. rumor and swirling and you know, that we're stepping into. It's tough to say. I think it has to do with what their aspirations are going to be in the spring. Pitcock 
wants to win some races in this all three of these riders want to win races in the spring and the ideal preparation is not going full gas through the cyclocross world championships if they want to fully realize their potential on the road in the spring we won't see any of these riders at the world championship i suspect that we will see vanderpool there and i want to talk i want to talk more specifically about a few things I've observed from his racing thus far. I think that he definitely has a chip on his shoulder and he wants, he has something to prove. I mean, coming out of that, I don't even know how to characterize what happened at the world championships, but it, it was awful. It was bad for him. It was a pretty gnarly incident and he didn't have his road season and the way he wanted to. And I definitely think he wants to have that world championship jersey and cyclocross so that's my take on it the, yeah so i'm just looking at van art didn't do worlds he kind of tapered off i thought it was a i thought his uh cross season was really well managed last year and this was unusual for him he tapers off doesn't go to world championships focuses on training for road cycling his job um he wins omloop right out of the gate eighth at san ramo that's eh, kind of whatever but then he wins e3 gets covid doesn't do uh flanders and then gets second at Roubaix, third at Liège, best on Liège. That's second at Roubaix and third at Liège is, I think that's more impressive than people realize. I don't, if you try to think of riders who have podiumed at that, at both races in the same year, he might be the only one, or maybe Eddie Merckx, or maybe Bernardino. Um, that's unusual. So it clearly paid off for him. And then he had a fantastic road season. So that's, that's the roadmap. I mean, but the problem with Vanderpool is I feel like he's getting physically beat up from, this this uh, overlap more than Pitcock and Van Aert are. We saw him go down pretty hard this weekend. He seemed to be fine. He won the next day, but he's he's picking up a lot of little injuries, like his back injury um, from the Olympic Rotary Champion or the Olympic Mountain Bike Championship in Tokyo, and then it looked like he hit his knee pretty hard on Saturday. Just you, if if I was his trainer, that's I would not want him picking up injuries. That are going to affect his training in the off season. You know that's what the season is for. That that's something to keep an eye on. And his back has been a problem. You know, it seemed like, you know, he obviously had fantastic spurts last year, but he also missed a good portion of the season because of his back. And it seemed like he didn't get the base training that he needed to go to Grand Tours, and that's why he was struggling so much at the Tour de France. So that that. that concerns me a lot about Vanderpool. It seems like he gets beat up more in these races than other people. Spencer, I almost feel like you've deployed Pegasus and are able to read the notes <laughs> that I have in front of me on I'm my close computer. Because I had to the uh, Palantir headquarters, so I, I've access to their <laughs> tools. Yeah, no doubt about it. I, I had the exact same thought. And you're speaking of Matthew Vanderpool's wreck at Super Prestige Boom, which was on Saturday, December 3rd, for fans out there who want to go back and rewatch the race. And what happened was Matthew Vanderpool was absolutely slaying the field on the first lap. And I think on the second lap, they came onto a cobble section. He, you know, his tires were slick. If you watch closely, they got stuck in a groove and his bike goes out from underneath him, which I don't know if that's ever happened to you in a surface transition in a cross race. It has happened to me, uh, Spencer. And if uh, part of me felt I felt bad for Matthew Vanderpool, but 
I kind of felt validated I, seeing the world's I best the cyclocross rider. Yes, <laughs> I have been there, and I thought, oh, I'm just not very good. And then he got yeah. caught up with the thing that I bet a lot of amateur cross racers have been caught up with. Yeah, I recall this happening at the Lion of Fairfax as part of the Super Pro Series, I think in 2014 or 2015. Adriano Castro was in front of me, and then I, I beat Adriano at the line because he dropped a chain within like 200 yards of the finish line and was running, and it felt so good to pass you, Adriano, and beat you. Anyway, uh, not that I remember <laughs> it that well, but when... um. When Vanderpool went down, yes, he hit his knee. And then Pidcock, who did not slide out on the cobbles, then rode into Vanderpool and then wrecked on the cobbles as well. And he had one of those awkward Vanderpools wrecked slightly higher speed. Pidcock's was one of those. He was stuck in his pedals and very slowly fell over. And you could tell he was trying to get his yeah, foot out. And you can get really it. injured doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like those low speed falls onto hard surfaces such as cobbles can really mess you up. And that's, I think that's the greater point of concern. There's the physiological CNS fatigue that these riders are going to incur and the debt their body's going to go into if they ride out the entire cyclocross season or just compete in a few races between now and January in advance of the road season. But the other factor here is, there are injuries just waiting to happen and it's not just crashing either you're they're running sometimes in mid calf deep mud on uneven surfaces and in other sports contractually riders will sometimes be forbidden from participating in high risk activities outside of their chosen sport so as a, for example if you're an NFL player you're you know you might not be allowed to go skydiving or wakeboarding something like that it might be forbidden in your contract and here we have people whose main job is pedaling bicycles in the world tour where granted they do crash all the time at very high speeds but they're going out and putting themselves at risk of having orthopedic injuries damaging ligaments tendons and i think that's maybe the greater risk here that something truly awful and potentially career altering happens while they're out racing cyclocross. I don't disagree. And I guess that's why they get paid less than their market value should be because that's getting, the risk is a little bit baked into those contracts. Well said, Spencer. And so let's go over, to, there's just a lot going on in the transfer market. I do a weekly, gonna have to switch to twice a week, um, update on the transfer goings-ons of every team. But the big the big thing is Mark Cavendish, uh, pretty famous. Some might call him the best sprinter of all time. He is older, though. He's getting, I think he's 38, is unemployed. And then Nairo Quintana, also unsigned. One of the weird, that's actually one of the weird things that I've seen happen that's not gotten a ton of coverage, where he was on a team, signed a long-term contract, tested positive at the Tour de France for a painkiller, which sounds bad, but... You know, on the face, you're like, well, okay, whatever, painkiller, not even it's not even a banned substance from WADA, so it's not a suspension. It's just a disqualification. Sucks to lose your sixth place, but whatever. Eat it on the chin, come back next year. But he gets fired by his team, his archaic team, who he saved from relegation because of all the points he scored, and now can't get signed from anyone. So that tells me maybe people think that there was more going on than just the painkiller. But Mark Cavendish, also a super weird situation. He is not retained by Quick Step. Uh, probably a good decision on Quick Step's part. They rarely make bad uh, 
they always let people go at the right time. So uh, I'll defer to Patrick Lefebvre there. And he is supposed to sign with B&B Hotels. Fantastic, right? It's a small team, fairly large budget because it's French. They're going to get invited to the tour. There's no one else in the team that's really that good. So he's going to have free reign at the tour. He's definitely going to start. Well, the team, uh, Amazon France is coming on as a sponsor. This is what we're hearing. The, the tour or the city of Paris is coming on as a sponsor. They're going to have a big presentation the day before the Tour de France route reveal. That doesn't happen. Um, Cavendish has already been fitted for clothing, by the way. So he thought this was a done deal. Now we hear, actually, they don't have any sponsors. The team's folding. That's belly up. So now Mark Cavendish is scrambling for a new team with like 20 days to sign and not that many roster spots remaining. Like, are we careening towards a possibility that Mark Cavendish is not employed next year and, and would also not be at the tour? Like, that seems crazy to me. You think that's possible? Possible? I've heard reports that Mark Cavendish loves to shop. And if he wants to continue shopping at the same pace, he's going to need a world tour contract in 2023. And yeah, I do think that it's possible that he doesn't land on a team. I think another possible option here, and Spencer, you'd be much more plugged into this than I am. Is there a possible that he goes to a tier two team, a team outside of the world tour, and perhaps we one we haven't considered yet, and that they then get um, wild card status to get into the tour? Yeah, that's. I think that's the path. I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think the big fish out there is Israel, uh, Israel Premier Tech. I think is their name now, but they stand to gain the most with the folding of BNB because they could potentially take the wildcard invite BNB would have gotten as a high-profile French second-division French team. So to really secure that, I think Mark Cavendish is the perfect acquisition for them. It's a little risky. for If Cavendish has any other option, he won't do it because it's, there's no guaranteed tour start involved there. And um, I've started a Beyond the Peloton subscribers chat, by the way. And you can, if you're a free subscriber, you can get in there as well. So check that out on Substack. But a question someone asked, a good question, like why doesn't he just sign for like the minimum, you know, like 45,000 euros a year and the publicity will be worth, you know, the money. Uh, you know, we watched, I, I know I watched it, the cat Mark Cavendish, like at home mini documentary where he's on Zwift. He's going to need to get paid. I mean, that is an expensive lifestyle that man is leading. I think people <laughs> underestimate just when you're making a certain level of money, how much, how high your burn rate is. Um, I think Mark Cavendish wants the contract. You know, if you can make two to three million euros in 12 months and you're at the end of your career, you're going to want to lock down that high paying contract. So I, I think, and I think he's trying to probably negotiate a high fee with Israel Premier Tech, especially since they're paying Chris Froome 5 million euros a year not to really produce any results. Um, Cavendish is going to want something maybe not on par with that, but something that you know, is respectful to his talents and what he still has left in the tank. Cavendish is probably spending more than $45,000 a year getting his watch collection yes. cleaned or having his chains waxed. I mean, it's a lot of work keeping those chains on for him during sprints. But yeah, I think that's spot on, Spencer. A question that I have with um, uh, potential target team. What is their relationship with Factor Bikes? Would they? Is there any possibility that Factor could be pushed out it's, as a sponsor and replaced by Special? Great question, and it's really tricky because Chris Froome is an owner of Factor Bikes, 
So he right. wants them on factor bikes. I'm sure Specialized wants Mark Cavendish on a Specialized bike next year. That's probably right. what's been holding this up because another thing I've heard from a pretty good source, but maybe maybe no one knows anything. Maybe Mark Cavendish doesn't know where he's going, and that's why this has been so confusing. Would be Ineos, but that's a little tricky too because I, I don't know why, but they've been a Pinarella team since they started. I don't quite understand the relationship there. Pinarellas are fine bikes if you're a wealthy person and you want a nice bike, buy a Pinarello. But I don't find them to be particularly light or fast. They're just kind of comfortable and you feel cool because you're riding one. Um, they must be getting paid a ton of money, Ineos, to ride Pinarello bikes. I don't think they're going to want to leave that on the table to sign Mark Cavendish to ride specialized bikes, which which is a superior bike, a racing bike to Pinarello. Um, so, yeah, that, that's probably complicating this quite a bit and you know could end up being i guess the sticking point but then again would would specialize really let him just fall out of the sport without getting the crack at that final tour de france stage win to overtake eddie Merckx for the all-time record i have a hard time believing that would happen we haven't talked about this yet and i didn't mention this earlier but i'm having alexi vermulen and avery stum who have the youtube channel Alexi and Avery and Alexi is race. He raced the lifetime Grand Prix this year, won the Belgian waffle ride, San Diego, but very good rider. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Went for, so I'm thinking of him because he went from world tour to doing the gravel mountain bike, still road racing and creating content path and great guy, super strong rider. And I'm just wondering if Cavendish perhaps goes down the gravel road now and becomes, no. you know, kind of starts to no. occupy that Jens Voigt, you know, the Jens Voigt is to track as Mark Cavendish potentially is to specialize. And I think he'll soon be joined by Peter Sagan. So if we think about potentially Cav and Sagan going into the gravel scene and Sagan, of course, former mountain bike world champion as a junior, do we see them go back and focus on different disciplines now in the twilights of their career. Sagan, of course, has a ride for 2023. He's not quite there yet, but could that be what's next for Cav? And then I think a follow-up question for Beyond the Peloton and Choose the Hard Way listeners is, will Cav then be on the line with Spencer and Andrew yes. <laughs> at Belgium Waffle Ride Lawrence in October of 2023, which we're committed to he doing? Might be. He might be on a team next year that's sponsored by Specialized and then I don't. I think it's crazy to think that he would race gravel in 2023 full time. I think he needs. He's at the level that he can win another tour stage. He's got to be on a team. But in the future, I don't think that's crazy. Um, that's a good way for him to make money, 2024 and beyond. You know, if you're still a fit rider and you're fast, that's. I'm, I'm sure they make it worth your while. But I, I kind of wonder how well would he do? You know, he's not, he doesn't have a massive engine. I think he might show up to some of these gravel races and it's, that's not the style of riding Mark Cavendish is really known for, you know, he kind of gets pulled around. He can race. You watch him in some of these um, like classic British road race championships. And you actually have to see Mark Cavendish like win from a breakaway. And it's very interesting because you don't see that, but I think he might struggle like the Belgium offer ride struggle to win. Probably. Um, I, I would actually love to see it now. Now that I'm talking about it, I really want to see it, but I don't think it's going to happen next year. Uh, I don't think he would win the, he wouldn't win the Belgian waffle ride. I don't think he could do it. I think there are other gravel rides he could target and 
it's probably a whole other can of worms. It'd be great to talk about where do we see the lifetime Grand Prix going next year because on the face of things, they're somewhat deprioritizing people's social media presence, which they've taken off the questionnaire to apply <laughs> to be uh, one of the pro athletes in the race. I think behind the scenes, it's still of equal importance as it was in 2022. Will the public continue to be interested in seeing this subset of riders compete in the same six races next year? How does the series have to evolve in the future? And then there's also a rival all single, it's not a rival, but there's an all single track four race series being put together by Jeff Kabush and a few other riders. So we are starting to see that resurgence of actual mountain biking that Spencer and I have been talking about for quite a while now that we anticipate coming out of the other side of the gravel machine. So much, so many storylines, Spencer, beyond the world tour and perhaps beyond, beyond the Peloton. I, yeah, I have some questions about that strategy. We can talk about that later, but yeah, why they excluded Kabush and then now they've created a competitor. Um, I'm just looking at the teams list. You know who has a lot of space left on the roster and could potentially slide into a Tour de France wildcard invite is Human Powered Health. Scott McGill's team, our best friend Scott McGill's teammate could be Mark Cavendish next year. I, I don't know. I might get on the phone with Charles Aaron, the team owner, after this podcast and, and lay out what's, in, what, what's possible here. What a flex. That, yeah, I don't, <laughs> yeah, me and Charles, best buds. <laughs> Charles, if you haven't considered signing Cav, uh, you know, we know, who are they? Do they ride felt you'd bikes have, You'd have Is to that? imagine that Specialized could get that contract if they wanted. Oof. I, uh, yeah, I think, I think, what, let's just play that out. Let's say I, I call Charles. He says, who is this? Who are you? Why are you calling me? And then hangs up, but then I call back and I, I, he finally listens to me. But, You'd have to have Specialized come in and pay Cavendish's salary, a la um, Total Energies with Sagan. That would be the only way that works. But contractually, could they even do that this late? Kick fell to the curb? I don't know. And would that even be healthy for the team? I'm sure that would be their their concern that they've spent so long cultivating this culture that they would then destroy with one signing. But do you? Before we go, do you? uh, Not not to say Cavendish like is a bad person, but he he would dominate the team you know, inside and out, and they would kind of lose their culture a little bit. But do you have, do you want to share a few COVID thoughts, like how it's affected your fitness and some takeaways from that before we go? Yeah, this will probably get us COVID flagged again by (laughs) Spotify. Yeah. Okay. So get the COVID flag out. My experience was I had a relatively mild COVID experience. My primary symptoms were, I felt like there were two uh, index fingers pressing against the back of my eyeballs for about 10 days. And then I, you know, had fatigue and some other symptoms. It really impacted me cognitively. I had even more trouble than normal forming coherent thoughts and paying attention to anything. And in addition to that, on the back end of it, and I talked to a number of different exercise physiologists and people who work with both professional and amateur athletes recovering from COVID. This has been covered. There are things that can happen uh, not even long COVID, but COVID can attack your mitochondria. And that's part of why it can be so difficult to rebuild your fitness following COVID. It also can cause inflammation of the heart, which has been, um, something that a number of endurance athletes have experienced just anecdotally talking to a lot of people in my network who are endurance athletes around my age following COVID, regardless of how severe the symptoms were, 
many people I know had this experience of they just, their fitness was destroyed. And there are, of course, much worse things that could have happened as a consequence of COVID. So this is kind of a uh, privileged problem, I think. And there's that impact on fitness. And then you need to focus apparently on zone one, zone two for a very long time, like for one or two months, perhaps longer before you can get back into intensity. But those are kind of the main things I noticed, Spencer, definitely cognitively more difficult to focus, more difficult to think, found it even harder than normal to write, which even after um, 25 years of being a pro storyteller, I've always oh found God, writing to be difficult. So it's unbelievable. Yeah, but it's even it's even harder now. It's like, wow, this uh something's going on with this COVID. And then fitness wise, just yeah, I mean, I'm three weeks out, I think, and I'm still just kind of shocked. Like I go play soccer with my son and I feel out of breath, which I've never experienced as an adult. How about you? What'd you experience? I was surprised how, yeah, the cognitive thing I noticed the most like really, really clouded thoughts, difficult to write, which is not super convenient because I write for a living. And like going to, I, I did like 14 days and or 10 days in isolation, 14 days after I have COVID, I go to Thanksgiving and I almost found myself like avoiding conversations because I found it a little difficult to form sentences the way I wanted to. Like I was really shocked by the cognitive struggles. Um, also, like if I have a cold, maybe I'll take a day off. Like I never take days off working out. I went probably a solid nine days without doing any physical activity, which is unusual for me. I don't know if I've ever done that. So just how hard and how hard it was to ramp back up, you know, doing like 150 watt average ride for an hour felt draining, like unbelievably tired. And then I was running over Thanksgiving very slowly. Like it just, you feel like you're bogged down. It made me think, like I think Adam Yates had COVID at the tour of Switzerland and the tours two weeks later. And the narrative was like, oh, can he recover in time? It's like, no, of course he can't. Re like, what, what were we talking about? I don't quite understand. I mean, maybe Van Art was asymptomatic and a lot of these tests were just, they, they had the virus, but they weren't showing symptoms. But I don't quite understand after having COVID how anyone was expecting to come back within a couple weeks of of being sick and perform at a level i mean i i understand why peter sagan has struggled so much since having COVID multiple times absolutely and don't forget that the tour de france had its magic viral load yes yeah experts that knew more knew more than all global health authorities who were putting riders back in the race who had some kind of viral load and were positive for COVID. and i don't know the mechanics of that having had COVID now, I, I can't understand how anyone yeah. could go compete in the tour de France with even like just a little bit of COVID, a smidgen of COVID. I, I don't know how they did yeah, it. Yeah. I don't understand it. And even before COVID exists, I, I would talk to my roommate about like, you know, it's like if we had colds, we're so bad at riding. Like we would go out on Boulder group, group rides and get dropped. And you're like, how is anyone sick in a race? Like, I don't understand how you could have a cold at the tour and not miss the time cut. But Maybe they're just getting like steroids that we're not, you know, it's like you never see an NBA player with a cold because they just like load you up on so many like legal steroids, I guess, but basically just jack you full of hormones and then you're not symptomatic for the time you're out there playing. But yeah, I, I don't understand how anyone could be expected. You know, I think we had this theory that Pogacar maybe had a low viral load on stage 14 or 15, the stage you got dropped. 
I, I don't know how much I believe that anymore. Like maybe he just bonked because if you have COVID and you're struggling that much, I don't see how you could recover in just a few days while racing. That, that seems impossible to me. Impossible. Yeah. I mean, he, he definitely something happened there. Right. And his stand up comedy that he was doing on the bike that day didn't continue after a certain point. I rewatched the stage. I, I would think he, he did, wasn't eating very much. Like the, from the moment Pagachar attacked, he was pretty isolated and didn't seem to get food or drink on board from there. So you, you would imagine a bonk could have happened quite easily, which is funny. We don't see the bonk very often in modern cycling. It's not, not as prevalent as it used to be. Maybe Pagachar needed to adapt more of a Scott McGill attitude and approach to nutrition that day. And maybe <laughs> rummage, to that episode of this rummage in the ditch for, for some, some scraps of vegetables that might be in there. Whatever it takes. All right. Well, I'll let you go, Andrew. We will try to get back on a more regular schedule now that we're semi-healthy and can think and form somewhat uh, complete sentences. So thanks for joining us and we will talk to you soon. 